Welcome to season six of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across ocean and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brewery. Honestly, I wish we'd closed it when it came time to renew the lease because it would have been a lot easier. We could have sold off a lot of our equipment. And instead, what we ended up doing was say, screw it, we're closing the doors. When Doug Appledorn got the inspiration to open his brewery, he wasn't just any old home brewer. He and co-founder Pietro first started a brewing collective that hosted events to champion creativity, inclusivity, and the homebrew community overall of Toronto, Canada. They followed virtually every homebrewer's dream and found a permanent space to create a brewery with the dream of taking their homebrew community with them on their journey to go pro. They hosted events for them, maintained taps for their beer, and sponsored their events, all while trying to grow their own fledgling craft beer brand. After opening in 2018, it didn't take long for the financial part of running a brewery to take its toll on Doug. While his story and the story of People's Pint hits some of the same notes we've heard already, I can assure you that his is a unique perspective that I'm proud to have the opportunity to share with y'all. So please settle in and enjoy the story of Doug Appledorn and Toronto's People's Pint Brewing Company. All right, Doug, I want to welcome you to the show today. Thank you for joining us. There's all the way from Canada. It's got to be a, a long, long, hard drive, but you, you made the you made the trip and I appreciate it. But anyway, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Yeah. So we're going to dig into a lot today. And it seems like I say this a lot, but I, I mean it wholeheartedly. You have a, in my opinion, a unique origin story. So I'm curious to get into this. And not only that, but obviously being in Canada, I would assume that you have a different perspective. Although I'm curious to learn just how different the market is there, or conversely, how similar it is. All right. Before we get too far into it, get to your commentary and everything. Tell us kind of who you were before you were beer. What else have you done? Who are you? Most of what I do during my day job, which I still have, is that uh, I'm a, an editor in children's television. Um, I work for a company called Nelvana, which has been making animated shows for the last uh, more than 50 years. So I, I started my career in, in film and television. And, you know, I got, I got interested in beer many, many years ago. And, you know, having the, the resources of having a, a pretty good job for a number of, of years, you know, I, I thought, you know, wh- why not? Let's open a brewery. So it was a, it was a dream I had for probably quite some time. I, I first got interested in beer back when I was in university and I discovered craft beer and mostly like, you know, like Belgian beers and German beers. I was I was discovering things that were outside of the usual beer that we were being fed in, in university. I started to get really interested in the flavor of beer, how it was made, all of those things. And I made this decision that, you know, it would be really cool to open a brewery. And so I thought, I'm going to have to do a bit of training. I'm going to have to learn a little bit about the craft before I jump into, you know, opening up a brewery. So I uh, I took a number of courses uh, up in Canada, there's a, a program called Prudhomme Beer Certification, which is very similar to Cicerone, except it's actually in class and, and we do, you know, tutored tastings and, and go through a, a number of things. And I took four levels of this, this course and ended up actually becoming a teacher myself. I started teaching the, the course and, uh, I have the designation Master Beer Somalia. 
And along the way, I, you know, I learned quite a bit about beer doing that. And I also thought, you know, I'm going to need to learn the business of beer before I can really step into owning a business. I need to learn how the business works. So I started working part time for a brewery just outside of Toronto called Neustadt Springs. They were a brewery that had been around a long time, owned by uh, an older British couple, and they didn't have uh, sales representation in the city. So a friend and I had gone up there, won a contest to be brewer for a day. So we went up and brewed beer at Neustadt Springs for the day. And that was kind of the time that I was bitten by the, the brewing bug. And I was like, this is fantastic. I love this. And I was taking notes and you know learning all I could. And then I spent probably four or five years selling beer part-time. I still had my, my day job at, uh, at Nelvana. And I started to learn the ins and the outs of the industry. At that time, and we're talking, this was about 15 years ago, the beer industry in Canada, in Ontario and Toronto, was still pretty, pretty ripe for expansion. There were maybe at that time 30 breweries in the entire province of Ontario. And I thought, you know, a lot of them were just making the basics, you know, an IPA or a, a lager or something. There there wasn't anything terribly exciting. Through the classes I was uh, taking, I, I met a, a number of people who were interested in homebrewing. And so I, I started to get into that. And I really, really enjoyed homebrewing. And, and I met a lot of great people, learned a lot of great things. And, you know, the, the thing that happens when you start brewing beers that people start tasting your beer and they're going, this is great. You really should be selling this. <laughs> I would totally buy this. And I'm like, you know what? That that sounds great to me. And I loved every single aspect of, of beer and brewing. I loved everything about it. I loved tasting it. I loved brewing it. I loved doing things. And my thing was that I like to do experimental things. I like to do stuff that no one's done before. And at the time when I started doing this, no one was doing things like that. And I thought, you know what? There's an opening in the market. So I eventually partnered up with another home brewer who eventually became my business partner. Um, his name was Peter. We did something a little different. And before we started the brewery, we started something called the People's Pint Brewing Collect. And we got a bunch of, a bunch of brewers together and we got them, we curated basically, we got them to submit a bunch of beer ideas and we picked a couple of the ideas that they submitted. So we curated a list of beers that we wanted to brew and we brewed them for an event and we sold tickets to this event. And at the time you actually couldn't do this legally. You can't sell homebrew to the public. So we made it a club. So you bought a membership to a club and then you showed up at the club and you could drink all the beer you wanted. The ticket price basically, or the, sorry, the membership price was enough to cover our costs of doing this. Plus, you know, a glass that we could give people and, these were wildly successful. We sold out every event that we did. We did five events. And during that time, we, we got the sense that, you know, there's a there's an appetite out there for unique beers and people are willing to drink beers that have been brewed by home brewers. So let's let's pull the trigger. Let's let's do this as a bricks and mortar. You already had the name yep. at this point, right? So back up a little bit, like what does People's Pint mean and how did you guys come up with that? So People's Pint was, it, originally it was called People's Pint Brewing Collective because we had a whole bunch of people coming together to brew beer. Our, our motto was beer by the people for the people. This is this is how it started. And we eventually renamed the brewery People's Pint Brewing Company um, because we didn't want people to think of, that it was still just a bunch of home brewers getting together. Although 
that is something that we did continue to do once we opened the brewery. So we had an opportunity come along. There was a, a brewery in our neighborhood. Um, we lived in the Junction neighborhood of Toronto, and there was a brewery called Junction Brewing. And they were giving up their space because they were expanding. They were moving into a larger space a little bit further away. But this brewery seemed kind of perfect for us because it was a, it was a small brewery. We were going to buy most of the equipment and just basically take over the space and remake it in in our branding and all of that. And it was a little bit out of the way. It wasn't on a main street. It was kind of in a semi-industrial area. But at the time, you know, I'd been to a lot of breweries in the States and around the world. And a lot of the breweries I'd been to were just in the middle of nowhere. It was, it was basically, if someone's brewing good beer, you'll make the trip. You'll go to some weird little neighborhood and check out their beer. And, and that was kind of the thinking that we had. It's like, we can, we can do this. If we make good beer, people will come. Because we had already a lot of the infrastructure in place, it didn't take us long. We took over the space on January 1st, 2018, and we uh, we were open by the middle of March. So it didn't take us long to convert the space into what we moved a few things around, installed a new bar, and just kind of made the place a little bit more kind of taproom friendly. Our whole thing was that we still wanted to support the homebrewing community. So we had our, our usual beers on tap, but we also had one tap that was reserved for the city's homebrewing club, which was called GTA Brews. And we would always have somebody come in once a week or every couple of weeks to brew whatever they wanted. And we would put it on tap. And in the beginning, that was wildly successful. Like people would invite their friends. They would have a release party. It was great because they got to brew beer professionally. And it was it was fantastic. The first year I have no complaints about it was great. People loved it. The novelty was, you know, it was it was a unique place. And then, you know, the realities of owning a, a business start to sink in. And I, I realized that owning a brewery isn't just brewing beer and drinking beer. It's 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 keeping up with all of the, the business side. Of it. And I, I realized that I was woefully unprepared for the business side. And, you know, it didn't matter how much I knew about beer and the industry. I honestly did not know about enough about running a business. The little things like buying enough inventory of a certain thing and having it on hand so you don't run out, like bottles were a big thing. We were constantly running out of bottles. And because our space was so small, we didn't have the space to, to buy in bulk. Mm -hmm. And we didn't, you know, we weren't getting the economies of scale in terms of buying things in bulk. So we were paying a premium for everything. It wasn't long after the novelty of our place had worn off that the reality set in that we needed to sell more beer than we were selling. You know, at first it was no problem. Our whole thing was is that we're going to sell you know, 100% of our beer out of our tap room and we won't need to worry about selling it to bars and restaurants and all of that. It wasn't long after the first summer that we were open that we realized that we couldn't survive if, if that was going to be our business model. So we had to aggressively start selling to bars and restaurants and we applied to have our beer sold in the liquor store there's a, a liquor monopoly in ontario called the lcbo uh, at that time there were only two places you could sell beer retail actually three you could sell it at your brewery you could sell it at the lcbo and you can sell it at a place called the beer store those are the only three places you could sell beer retail so we said we had better get on that and it's a hugely complicated process to get a beer in there but we managed to get one in and we started selling it at the LCBO. And again, you have to sell it to every single store. So, you know, there's, there's over three or 400 stores in the, in the chain. And so you have to eat, approach each one of them separately and start selling to them. And, you know, it, it became, and 
I have to say that this entire time, my, my partner, Peter, who was our full-time brewer, he had quit his job and was brewing beer full-time. I was still working my full-time job. Right. So I was still going to work every day because we had borrowed a, a significant chunk of money to get this thing rolling. And in order to service that debt, I needed an income. And the brewery wasn't going to be enough for me to quit my job and still service that debt. So I was doing, you know, I was burning the candle at both ends the first year. It, uh, it got to a point. Yeah, I got to a point where I couldn't do it. And I actually had a mental breakdown and I had to step back. I actually took time off from my full-time job just so that I could step back from it. And it, uh, it, it, it nearly, it nearly killed me at, you know, I'm, I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating when I said I woke up one morning and I just didn't want to do anything. I just, you know, I was, I was coming, I was walking across the street and I said there, there was a bus coming and I'm like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to die. I don't want to kill myself, but you know, if this bus hit me, maybe I wouldn't have to worry about things for a little while. And that's when I realized things had to change. Was it mainly the stress and the futility of just banging your head against the wall and not getting progress or just kind of, or I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what, what was it? it? It was, it was a lot of things. It was the futility of trying to make things work. It was try, it was working really, really hard doing, you know, I would work my full-time job, come home. And there was an expectation from my partner that I would show up at the brewery after, after I finished work. Mm. You no, know, I wasn't seeing my wife. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have a life outside of working at the brewery and my job. And it, it just got to a point where I couldn't handle it anymore. So, you know, we made a decision that I would hand off a lot of responsibilities to, we hired a taproom manager and we hired a sales manager and we got them to kind of run things. And a lot of that fell to my, my partner to, to run the day to day stuff. And I continued to do, you know, everything that I could from, you know, my office at Melvana, you know, cause I, in film production, there's a lot, quite a bit of downtime. So I was just sitting in an office at my computer. So I ended up doing a lot of the, you know, the, the, the administrative stuff, the marketing, and I, I took over doing the social media, but it was, it was a constant, constant grind. And we kind of figured it out. And in 2019, things were, were, were going okay. We, we figured out the equilibrium, but it was still a lot of work and it was still really a constant effort just to keep the sales levels just to break even. And there were a lot of months where, you know, we weren't sure if we were going to break even and, I kept pouring more money into the into the business just to keep it going, just to keep the lights on, to keep everybody paid. Things were going starting to really do well the spring of 2020. Like our licensee sales had picked up. We had quite a few bars and restaurants. You know, our our salesperson was doing a great job. And then it happened to everybody. COVID-19 hit. We thought, you know, that's it. We're finished. There's nothing. There's this is going to kill us. And the funny thing was, is that the first month of lockdowns, we actually had our best sales ever because people wanted to support us and wanted to buy beer from us. And we pivoted and just started doing home delivery. We we ended up buying a van to do home deliveries in the city. And we were kind of lucky. There were quite a few government uh, subsidies available, COVID subsidies. Some of them were loans. Some of them were just straight up grants. And if it weren't for those, we probably would have closed our doors within months of the pandemic happening because that, that euphoria of, of people buying beer in the first couple of months, mm -hmm. that, that kind of leveled off. And people were like, Oh, wait a second. I, I can't sustain this level of drinking. And so our sales kind of leveled off and they became kind of more realistic with what, what we'd been selling previously. And without our licensee sales, because bars and restaurants weren't open, we 
we, we really struggled. And without the, the government money, we couldn't have done it. And then, you know, that was a couple of years of that. So we, we managed to limp along with the government money and the various lockdowns and up and down sales. We managed to limp along for a couple more years. And then, you know, when restrictions started to ease, people started going out again, the government money stopped. That's when things really became a struggle for us because half of the businesses that we were selling beer to prior to the pandemic were gone. Mm-hmm. They'd just gone out of business. Also, during that time, I don't know why, but a bunch of new breweries opened <laughs> during the pandemic. So oh, not only were there fewer places, not only were there fewer places to sell our beer, there was more beer being sold. So the competition was much higher and our business was not in an easy to reach location. So we weren't getting the foot traffic of people coming out and the people, people just weren't coming out the same way they were. And buying habits changed. And you know that we were in business for five years and the fifth year was probably the worst. We, we just couldn't do it anymore. The, the market had changed. People's buying habits had changed. And, you know, we just, we couldn't sustain it anymore. And I had told my partner, I'm like, I, I have no more money to put into this. So he started putting money into it and he realized that it was a bottomless pit. And we both kind of made a very hard decision. We're like, we can try to sell this business and see if someone will buy it. And so we tried that. We had a couple people that were interested, but nothing panned out. And then in the fall of 2022, interest rates started to go up. The cost of everything started to go up. Inflation was up. And that's kind of, that was the the nail in the coffin for us is that that extra bit of money, actually, that wasn't the nail in the coffin. Renewing our lease was the nail in the coffin. We had a five-year lease and it was coming up for renewal. And we wanted to renew for five years because we had interest buyers and they wanted they wanted us to have a, a renewed lease. So we renewed the lease and we tried to negotiate, you know, a similar rate to what we were paying. And our landlord said, nope, we're going to jack the rent by another two grand a month. And we're like, that's not going to be sustainable for us. We, we can't do it. But because at that time we were negotiating to sell the business, we're like, we're just going to have to suck it up and pay this. That extra bit of rent was basically whatever margin we had left. And so month after month, after we signed this new lease, we were just drowning. We couldn't do it anymore. And my, my partner and I, we, we decided that we just have to close the doors. And we owed so much money in back rent and various suppliers that we just, we basically handed the keys over to the landlord and walked away. <laughs> so equipment and everything, it was just, it was just the easiest thing to do. And we put the company into bankruptcy and that was it. All right. So, well, so that obviously was a, a quick version of a very traumatic story. I'm sure there's going to be a lot we get into. Yes. This will be kind of a fun way to go through it. So normally I don't have somebody who can succinctly talk about the whole thing in 20 minutes like that. That's fantastic. And so now I can go <laughs> back and kind of like, you know, I have more questions obviously because of that. And so over sure. the next three segments, I want to really dig into kind of the setup and where those decisions were made. And point of the podcast is ultimately to pay forward to the next generation of people who are either considering doing what we did, which hopefully they don't, yep. or or in it and you know facing a similar situation and just continuing to put that two thousand dollars a month in that the rent goes up, yep. um, out of their future earnings, future earnings for their kids and and any other investor they may know, um, and, and maybe help them make the decision yep. not to do that. So. Actually, easy. let's take a quick break. And as soon as we get back, I want to kind of go into the setup thing because I have a lot of interesting questions, or I think they're interesting questions about that setup part as well. So, sure. All right, we'll be right back. Do 
you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Okay, so again, super interesting trajectory. And like I said, I think you had an interesting origin story, partially because you did obviously the collective, which was different. Uh, you also went into a brewery space that was a previously brewery space. And one of the questions that I had is, A, was the equipment still there? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. They took some of it with them. And we had, we purchased a few of their, like we, we purchased their brewing system, a couple of their fermenters, their bright tanks, but we had bought our own fermenters along the way prior to, to doing this. They were just in storage in my garage. So we had quite a bit of equipment. They wanted to sell us more than we actually ended up buying. But it was fine because they were moving to a new space. So they, they just took whatever we didn't want. But the main things were there, like a walk-in cooler and the, the brewing system, you know, the fermenters, a lot of it was in place. So we just, we had to do some minor upgrades, but by and large, it was a walk-in and I wouldn't say turnkey, but pretty close. Yeah, which, which saves a tremendous amount of money. I know people that I tell the story of what the quotes we got just for running fucking steam lines was $30,000. It was another like yep. ten for yep. glycol or fifteen, I think, for glycol and then even rigging, just getting them off the truck after paying for the shipping, I had to pay another guy like $3,000 with his crew to get it, yeah. just to stand the fermenters up. So, you, I mean, you save a lot of money doing it that way. Well, the, the, the funny thing is, is that when you start out doing this, you get, you have a lot, like we received loans from a business development bank and we'd had our own savings and credit that we had available. So at the beginning, you have tons of money. Mm-hmm. So, or you think you, you have feel you're rich, yeah. you start spending money on stuff going, well, that's $50,000. Like, we, we have to do this. So let's do it. And then you start realizing as the money starts to diminish, it's like, we still have to do this, this, and this. And we're, you know, we don't have enough money to do that. We're going to have to do this m- more cheaply. And there were a lot of mistakes we made in the beginning. Uh, one of them, and I will never forget this one. We had a beer that we thought was going to be our number one seller. And we went ahead and bought can sleeves and and we we bought like 50,000 of them and we we spent $5,000 on getting these can sleeves it's like yeah we can sell that no problem this is before we opened the brewery we stupidly discovered that this was a it was a sour beer um it was a, a, a beer we called goza cuervo which was a tequila infused goza which is a fantastic beer but the canning company that was going to come in the mobile canning company said we don't do sours we can't do sours mm-hmm. so we had all of these can sleeves that we could no longer use. So basically we were, we were screwed. We couldn't use those and we'd spent $5,000 on these beautiful can sleeves and couldn't even use them. So we ended up bottling that beer and it was a great seller, but you know, those are some of the mistakes you make early on when you, when you're starting a business. You think this is going to be wildly successful because everybody loved it at our, all of our events. It's going to be great, but it yeah. doesn't work out that way. Well, so that was a question as well that I like to ask everybody a little bit about how you decided upon what your lineup was going to be. And 
Um, I know you had a brew schedule and you had kind of a consistent idea of what to brew and when and how to feed the market and supply it so you didn't have um, out of stocks and empty taps in your tasting room, but you had a partner. So how did those conversations go? Was it, hey, this is my favorite beer, we're going to make it? Or like you said, this did great at the festivals and when people weren't paying for it directly, let's make this one? It was a hand. It was a handful of things because we had 15 taps in the tap room. So because a lot of our batches were small batches, like our brew system wasn't very large. It was only 400, it was four hex. So it was 400, I don't know how many barrels that is, but it, it wasn't a huge system. So we we had the ability, like our fermenters were 400 liters, 800 liters, and 1,200 liters. So we could do a double batch or a triple batch or a single batch. So we had a lot of we had a lot of flexibility in terms of what we were able to brew. So we wanted to brew, we had four core beers that we really wanted to always have on hand. And then the rest of our kind of philosophy was that we want to have a beer for everyone. You know, we always had an IPA. We wanted to ha- always have a lager. We wanted to have an easy drink and ale. We wanted to have a sour. And then we also wanted to have things that are kind of not usually pe- that people usually have. I mean, we had like a wheat beer, and a, a Belgian triple and, a, you know, an English mild. We had we had a whole lineup of uh, like a great variety of beers because we wanted people to come in and say, there's going to be a beer for everyone who comes in. Cause it was, it was too often that we went to breweries and they'd have six different kinds of IPA, which is great if you love IPAs, but if, if you're not an IPA drinker, there's nothing for you to drink. And we thought this was a, a solid way to go. It was, and it wasn't because we always had something for everyone, but we didn't have anything that outsold anything else because there was just so much to choose. You didn't have like an obvious winner that you could call a core beer. So no. interesting. So as far as the model itself with 15 taps, that's going to take a lot of your time and effort. Well, and actually back up again, what, what size system did you guys choose? It was, that was the system that was there. What was the brew house? It was, I guess? It was a system. So the brew house was, it was, it was a weird little brew house. It was, <laughs> it was a dual system of, it had two brew kettle, two brew kettles. They were 200 liters each. Hmm. So it had, we had one um, mash ton. So basically you would start one brew of 200 liters. And as that was, you mashed that one out. And then when the boil started, you would start the second mash in the second brew kettle. So you could do 400 liters at a time, but you could keep alternating. You could basically, if you were doing a, a, a double brew, you would basically just keep bouncing back and forth. And it would just, your, your brew day would just be long. You know, I tried to convince my, my partner that we needed a different system. And he said, no, I like this system. It'll give me lots of flexibility. And it did, but it also made his brew days really long. But yeah, he loved want, to brew, so he didn't care. If you wanted to do a 400 liter batch, it would you couldn't just do it. You had to do two 200 liter batches, basically. Because you couldn't do them simultaneously? Or could you kind of, was a mash time big enough to do one off You could enough? kind of. No, the mash time was only big enough to do 200 liters at a time. So you did the mash first okay. into the first kettle. And then when the first kettle was starting to boil, you filled up the mash ton again, and then you started the second kettle. So it was always like that. So you could con- continue to alternate back and forth. So you could keep brewing the entire day if you wanted to. But most of our brew days were just 400 liters at a time because we had most of our fermenters were 400 liter fermenters. And then we had a couple of eights and a single 12. So okay. the single 12 was usually what we, we we'd put our lager in because that was ended up being our biggest seller was our lager. And so with the 15 taps, was the model, what was, or, or did you have a distinct decision for this? Did you have a model for, that was either taproom focused, distribution focused, or hybrid? And by hybrid meaning like more than 15% of one or the other. So if you just, what, what was the plan of where you were going to sell the beer? Well, that was the funny thing is we didn't know. And, you know, all the market research can't tell you what people are going to buy. So we ended up just 
being taproom focused at first, and we were trying to see what people would buy. And there was no rhyme or reason to what people would buy. So trying to figure out what people would buy became the biggest challenge. There were a few core favorites that when it was when it was out, people were like, when is this going to be back? So we'd be like, okay, we better brew that again. And we kind of got the hang of it after a couple of years, but it took a little bit of time to find our equilibrium in terms of what we should brew more of. By the fourth or fifth year, we had kind of dialed it in and we were we had way fewer tap beer taps in the fourth year than we did in the first couple of years. So we focused on what would sell. Yeah, we took we we had a lot of empty taps towards the end because it was just it was too much of a challenge to keep that many beers going. I mean, it was great when people came in because they're like, oh, my God, there's 15 beers to choose from. But it was also we had to keep 15 beers going at all times. And some just didn't sell. You know, the home brewers that used to come in, the ones they always wanted to brew were for some reason they wanted to brew Saison. And because uh, I don't know, that's what they like to brew. And, and we're like, guys, we can't sell Saisons. People don't buy them. <laughs> They're excellent. They're fun to brew, and they're as a homebrewer, they're an awesome beer to have. But people don't buy them. They're they're a tough sell. And uh, it got to the point where we had to start saying, "Okay, what do you want to brew? No, that's not going to work. No, that's not going to work. Brew something like this." And so we ended up getting a bit more variety that way. But it got to the point where the homebrew stuff, we started doing that on our pilot system, so that we weren't, mm. you know. Yeah, it, it, it would be a small, small batch. So there would be a lot, a lot less. Well, a couple other questions about the startup, and then I want to move on a little bit to the, the, the build-up years. But on the startup piece, sure. you already mentioned that the rent was a big part of it, and you had a five-year lease. Going back, this seems to be a consistent topic that a lot of my guests have, have talked about. But going back, how would you have negotiated that lease differently? In states, we typically have extensions written into the lease, usually two. I've seen longer, but... Uh, that's rare. Uh, is that something that you could have negotiated or is it just like a non-Canada thing? We don't do that shit in Toronto. I don't know. Well, they do actually. And the thing was is that we took over the lease from the previous brewery and they were on their first five years and they had the option to renew for the second five years. Mm. And we were the second five years. And when we did, when we did take over the lease, we're like, can we have an option to renew? And they're like, no, we'll talk about that when you're, when you come up for renewal, because I think he wanted to play the market and didn't want to give us a sweet deal at the beginning because we were an untested new brewery. And this guy was a career landlord. This this is what he did for a living. He didn't do anything else. So he knew that we were inexperienced and he was going to take advantage of that and he did. So we didn't really have much of a, a strong bargaining position at the beginning because we really wanted to do this. And he, I think he saw that and he just basically took advantage of that. And by the time it came time to renew... Any deal we could have made five years previous would have been a hell of a lot better than what we ended up getting. The guys that first, when they, they were first there, they were paying half of what we ended up paying in, in our, in the second, the second go around. So yeah, it, it, it's a bit, it, it sucks a bit because the location wasn't great and anybody else that tries to go into that space and do it is just going to, is going to have the same challenge as we do. Well, so my other question on the startup piece was the financing aspect of it and obviously going back. There's a lot of things you see like, oh, we should have had a line of credit. We should have borrowed an extra this or we should have financed differently. What lessons did you learn there that you would, and I'm saying you will, but if you were to go back and do it again, what would you do? <laughs> I would put a hell of a lot less of my own money in. Okay. That that was where I went wrong. I, I put in a lot of my own money and I never saw it back. So it's just, it's a loss. It's I'll never see it again. And um, did you make the choice to do that because it was easier 
or just maybe didn't have the expertise in raising money. And, and I did it because I didn't want other people's money. I wanted it to be my thing. And I made the same mistake. But yep. at the end of the day, I would have been closed down sooner had I not used my own money because somebody else would have come down. Yeah, you know, that that's true. That's true of us as well. It was just easier for, you know, we could have borrowed more money. We could have found investors. I just wasn't very savvy when it came to getting people to invest. People always say that don't don't ever start a business with your own money because you're just going to lose it at the end of the day if it goes south. And I just didn't have the experience or the know-how to convince somebody else to fund my dream. So I ended up using my own money. And that's a lesson learned. So like I said, I want to talk a little about kind of the startup and the, I guess your situation's a little different. Normally the first two years, everyone's super thrilled about it. And then like a year after you opened is when you had to take some time away or whatever. But um, talk yeah. to me about a little bit about that, like where the wins were, because, you know, in the beginning, you're, you're brewing beer, people are liking it, you brew more, it, it feels like growth, it feels like the, you know, it's going to go on forever. What were some of those experiences like for you or some of the wins? And then we can talk about some of the horror stories as well. So me, for me, building the brewery was probably the most exciting, fulfilling thing I've ever done. I had so much energy and so much enthusiasm. When we took over the space and had to, you know, mold it into something that was ours and, you know, getting people hyped up and, and doing the social media, getting people excited about it. I was having the time of my life. I loved it. Loved every part of it. When we had our grand opening, it was the most thrilling thing because the place was packed. We were running out of beer as we were selling so much of it. And we were just on top of the world the first the first six months it was just fantastic we were doing events we had people coming in we had um uh, pop-ups coming in you know doing food pop-ups and it was it was really it was fantastic i loved it that the energy was great we you know we had fantastic staff we had great customers and and we were you know we were on top of the world and we started in the spring and then by the end of the summer you know things start to slow down and reality starts to set in and that's you no know, that's kind of when I had my breakdown is is that the reality set in and I I didn't know if I was going to be able to pay the bills and that's when I had to take a step back and reevaluate after that my my attitude I was still very enthusiastic you know, the year the year immediately after that but it started to wear me down like it was a grind a constant grind of just staying on top of things just paying the bills making sure things were ordered the, the non-fun stuff of running a brewery was the stuff that started to wear me down. I also started to, because I was doing the social media and I was posting every single day, trying to find something new to post about every single day also became a, a slog. And it was just, it was not fun. The, the social media piece is one of those that just drives me absolutely crazy because you can tell the breweries that look like they're doing well definitely have paid social media people. And while yep. there's some some wins there and and it works i mean i've had arguments with people all the time they're like well look at that brewery they're doing well like what do you mean like they're, they're not making money like well don't look at their instagram like, there's no profitability on instagram no one's telling you that they're so yeah it's the- no just talking about social media in general i did notice that if i didn't post like if i took a couple of days where i didn't post because i didn't feel like it i noticed a difference in sales and we had a direct like most of our I'd say we had almost 10,000 followers for a while. We were above 10,000 on Instagram. And that was basically people who lived in the neighborhood who consumed our beer. So it was a direct line to all the people that we were trying to reach. And I noticed that if I didn't post regularly, it did impact sales. Sometimes we'd have, I'd get the staff to do it. And 
I noticed that their posts didn't work out as well as mine because they weren't putting the same kind of effort into it that I was. So I, it, it does make a difference. I, I did find that social media made a difference. Yeah, unfortunately. That, well, that's one of the main ways that we market nowadays. Like, I'm curious... Yep. I guess back in the, the old days, the 60s, 70s, even maybe the 80s, that most of that marketing was done just at pubs, like for the most part. And I imagine there was an yep. occasional newspaper ad, but they couldn't have been super effective. But No. So do you remember at the time when you opened, like, kind of how many breweries there were in your area, like what you were competing with? And- well, what I remember distinctly was at that time when we opened our brewery, we were number 250 in the province. And in the city, there were maybe 15 or maybe 20 at the time. Now there's like well over 50. Well, I don't know about now, but (laughs) by the time we closed, there were well over 50 in the city. It's too many. There's way too many breweries now because people did what we did. It was like, oh, I I make good beer. I'm going to open a brewery. Some people are successful doing that. Most are not. Well, so the main question would be kind of where you guys sat in in relation to that. And you mentioned earlier that the idea when you first opened is that most of or when you first got into beer, especially with most of what you tasted was probably Labatt Blue and, and that, that's the one we know of, but I mean, Molson. Yep. Um, yep. And so, you know, fairly run of the mill, same thing as America, you know, all kind of homogenized beer styles for the most part. And what you were going to do yep. was distinctly outside of that different, unique, esoteric on purpose. And were other competitors then coming in later and following that lead and taking that market share that you hadn't yet gotten, I guess? Yeah, pretty much. See, our philosophy was always that we're going to try to take market share from the big guys. And that's not the reality. The reality is, is you're taking market share from each other because there's only a certain number of people that are willing to drink craft beer, not not necessarily craft beer, but just small batch beers, that kind of thing. And, you know, the the other tough part of it is, and this is the, the sales side with licensees, is that they expect a lot of free shit. They expect you know, marketing materials, they expect keg deals, they expect a lot of stuff that we just couldn't afford to do. And really selling your beer at a restaurant was a form of marketing. Because if somebody at a restaurant saw your beer, they're like, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of this brewery before. I'm going to check them out. We did have a lot of people walking through our doors and said, I tried your beer at X restaurant and really loved it. and I wanted to pick some up. So that was a very effective form of marketing for us. Except it just, there were so many places that required us to give them free shit that at a certain point it was not profitable for us. But, you know, we, we had to do it and we, we felt like it was, and, and when there started to be more and more breweries, that market share wasn't terribly huge because there's a lot of restaurants out there that don't care about what beer they sell. They just want to sell beer and they don't care if you're a, a small neighborhood brewery. We actually found it toughest to sell to the restaurant in our immediate neighborhood than we did to restaurants across the other side of the city. Why it it was weird how, I don't know, maybe because, well, you're just down the street, they can just get it from you, why would we sell your beer? You know, it's not special, it's not unique. And I think a lot of places wanted something that was special and unique. We actually had a lot of outside the city sales, which were a bit difficult for us at first because delivery was a problem. We sorted that out eventually and found a, a delivery service, but there were a lot of places outside the city that wanted our beer because it was it was different. I know one of the things we've dealt with a lot here in the States is that the local bars and restaurants consider it competition. And I don't know necessarily yeah. that that's untrue in the sense that if uh, if you go there, you drink the beer, you're going to be like, oh, this brewery is interesting. You may not go back to that restaurant next time. You may leave instead of having a fourth beer exactly. over there and drink it. So, yeah, I, mean, I think that that is a problem with being in the neighborhood for sure. Yeah, which was disappointing for us. But at the same time, you know, we were trying to get into places that had, you know, storefront 
walkability that we just didn't have. And we had a couple of really great supporters in the neighborhood. One of the bars was exceptional. They put like four of our beers on tap and kept us on tap on a regular basis. So we did have our supporters. Um, we just didn't have enough of them. Okay. Well, I want to take a quick break and we get back. I want to ask a little bit about, you mentioned the delivery service. And so that kind of go-to-market plan, you said once you guys opened and you realized that you needed to start distribution, there typically are a lot of negatives to that, um, especially if you have yes. planned it into your model. But let's take a, a quick break and then we come back. Let's, let's dig right into that part. Sure. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, so welcome back. So we're gonna dig into the third segment here. Let's let's talk about distribution, and that takes a lot of different forms. So I don't necessarily mean third-party distribution. What? So talk to me. I guess explain what the delivery service is. I know you guys can self-distribute in Canada, but what? Whether you self-distributed, whether you had a distributor as an option, and why you chose the route you chose. So ninety percent of what we distributed, we self-distributed. We had our own delivery van and a delivery guy that would do deliveries to all of our licensees to the the LCBO, like the liquor stores and the beer stores. That would all be part of our delivery run. Where we got into third-party distribution was outside of the city. And we basically pay, part of this came out of the pandemic as we were selling home delivery to people outside of the city. So we would just ship them our beer. And the only way to do that effectively is with a third-party distributor. Mm -hmm. So they would come by whenever we had a delivery Usually once or twice a week, they would pick up all the orders and then they would go out. We paid a rate based on how far it was going. For home delivery stuff, we charged a flat rate of like 15 bucks for, I think the maximum was like 20 beers that you could get in, in an order. And then for the kegs, we ended up using the same service. So we discovered that we could get kegs delivered to restaurants and bars around the province. We can't sell outside of the province of Ontario legally, so we were confined. I mean, Ontario is a pretty big province and, you know, there's 15 million people living in in the province. So it's it's not a small market. So we did have access to a fairly large market. And Toronto's a big city. It's, um, you know, 4 million people. So there was plenty of people to sell to. So we just handled most of it ourselves. So when you say you couldn't sell outside legally, was that because of your license or that nobody there can? Is that like a thing? Uh, you can. It's just, it's a lot of red tape. There are breweries that are selling outside of the province, but there's it's actually easier for us to sell to a different country than it is to a different province. <laughs> there's there's so much stupid red tape and bureaucracy that and taxes and weird 
it's just weird that you can't sell easily to the neighboring province. It didn't really matter for us because where Toronto is located, it's not near the borders of any other provinces. So actually, the U.S. was closer for us. If, if we wanted to sell to the U.S., we could. Okay. We could have sold to New York State or to Michigan if we wanted to, but we, we didn't end up doing that because we, we had enough of a, of a market access in Toronto itself. Yeah, well, so the distribution game in, in the States typically is where you've got an FOB that you're selling inventory to the distributor. And so it sounds more like yours is a delivery service or am I just understanding that differently? Yes. So you you could basically effectively either eat or charge the cost of delivery in that sense if you wanted to and just sort of call, that's right. call it a shipping cost? That's that's what we did usually. You know, there were, there were other breweries that were offering free shipping, but nothing's free. They were just building into the cost of their, their beer. So we struggled with that and... We didn't want to raise our prices too much, so we just we just made it a, an extra charge. Okay, well, so that's cool. Do you have the option to do that on a small scale? Cause that, that's one problem with distribution here. Is that if I knock thirty percent off the cost of everything that I produce to go to the distributor, even if it's only a couple of accounts across the street, it's the same price as it would be if they have to travel, you know, three states over. It, it, there's no yeah. no kind of like I guess benefit for being close and having a lower fuel charge to get the the product to the place, but logistically that requires a lot more management on your part or someone's yes. part at the brewery. So, you know, I and I imagine that grew with time as you're like, oh, we've got these three customers, and now oh shit, now we have 97 customers. Who's managing that? Yeah. Who's marketing yeah. to them? Who's handling customer complaints? Like, how, did you have to hire somebody? What did you end up doing for that? For the home delivery stuff, we had a delivery person, but our sales manager who we had hired to do licensee sales, wasn't doing a whole lot of licensee sales during the pandemic, during lockdown. So he ended up being the home delivery sales manager. And then it just, it was a hybrid. As that diminished, you know, the licensee sales started to grow. So he managed that all entirely himself. So it worked, it just worked out that way. So tell me, like, what were some of the big wins before we get into some of the struggle pieces and like towards the end? Like, what were some of the like proudest moments when you remember the that we made xyz beer or we sold out this you know thing over a weekend and, or you know what what for um, you what were your wins well one of the things that we we discovered is that we became very community focused in terms of supporting our community and supporting local charities and we became a very socially conscious brewery and we found that when we did like black is beautiful collaborations they were wildly successful when we released our first black is beautiful it was our best sales day ever on the release day. We were just shocked at how many people came out to support that. So we continued to do that. And we started doing, you know, collaborations with uh, local charities. We did one with the um, the SPCA because we have a we have a brewery cat or had a brewery cat who was adopted from the SPCA and she lived at the brewery. So she was our brewery cat who basically caught mice. And we had this very kind of she, she had her own Instagram account and, you know, it was a it was a very visible thing. We sold merchandise with her picture on it. And that was kind of a, a big deal. Everybody came out to see our cat. Her name was Maris. And she was kind of a, a celebrity. And that kind of helped sell beer, having a cat on site because people would come to see the cat and stay for the beer. So that was one of the things that, we, that was kind of cool. We also did, we wanted to do a little far more collaborating with other breweries than we ended up doing. Some of the collaborations we did, we did with breweries that were similar size. And those were some of our prouder moments because we would come up with a label together and cross promote it. And we, we really enjoyed doing that. And we, we, had, we ended up doing one with a brewery outside of, just outside of the city. And it was a collaboration with them and a local radio station. 
<laughs> then and the proceeds were going to a charity and that ended up being a great one because we were getting all kinds of free press free advertising on the radio it ended up being a great a great seller and a great we were getting a lot of media interviews that kind of thing so you know those kind of things were fun those kind of things were were really great and made me you know enjoy the business much more than i was not doing those things so you mentioned your partner's name a few times and you talked through that whole thing, but you've never said that he was a problem. So I have to assume that was a good relationship. How, how did you guys maintain oh, it was. a good he, relationship? We were mostly on the same page about everything. Yeah. Um, so he was a great partner. I never, we never had a problem. Where we ran into problems was either with staff or with just various relationships with different people. He and I, he and I got along great. You know, so it was never a it was never a problem. When you know, right right up right up to the end, we things were good. Was that just sort of inherent in the relationship that you guys had, or did you do certain things to cultivate being on the same page? And because I, I say is that the people who when it goes bad, their suggestion is always never get a fucking partner. It's the worst thing ever. Don't do it. But what did you do? Uh, well, I think it was both good and bad because it was good in that we were very similar people, very similar attitudes, very similar temperaments, and in a partnership that sometimes isn't the great because we're both doing the same thing when sometimes what's needed is a different approach. Like you need the good cop, bad cop, and both of us were being the good cops. So we never had that. Somebody taking the, you know, the hard nose approach to things. And that may have been one of our downfalls is that we, neither one of us wanted to be assholes. And, you know, I think in business that sometimes you have to be an asshole to get things done. And neither one of us were those people. So we just couldn't be assholes to people. We couldn't do the hard things sometimes. And that's perhaps why we weren't as successful as we could have been. I don't know. I would say that, that I would love to have somebody try to prove that there was a, another brewery owner in the state of Texas that was hated more than me when I owned my brewery. And I, I'm still out of business. So I don't think it worked to be an asshole or at least not to be perceived. Yeah, as you know. Yeah, no, we uh, we tried to be we tried to be well loved by everyone, you know, distributors, customers, you know, everybody, you know, suppliers. And you just can't. Sometimes you have to be hard nosed about stuff and we just couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I don't have the stomach for that. And that's probably why we aren't in business. anymore. Well, it's because one of the questions I would have in that relationship is that you because obviously you had a real job or a full time job, whatever. But so he handled the majority of the brewing, I assume, during the day. So was there ever a situation where you walked in and you're like, dude, we aren't going to sell that. You messed that batch up and he fought you about it? Or was it always like, no, he agrees. It sucks. We got to dump it. There, there, were, there were a few times when that happened. He and I, thankfully, were pretty good. Like both of us had a really good sense of smell and taste. He had an excellent palate and I think I did too. If we both ever had a beer that we didn't think was going to sell, we dumped it. And we were pretty much in agreement about that. There were certain styles that he brewed. I wish he didn't brew as many of, but at the same time, that would be the only kind of place where we kind of disagreed. I wanted to brew far more hazy IPAs because that's what I thought sold. It's also what I like to drink. (laughs) So he was brewing a lot of like styles that I wouldn't have brewed. He brewed a lot of English styles, a lot of like things that I wouldn't have thought to brew. You know, to give him credit where credit is due, some of those did very well. So to my surprise, there were things that he did not like to brew, but he did anyway because he knew they would sell. So he wasn't big on making sours, but he did because they sold. That was actually one question that I had that I forgot to ask you when it came up. So you mentioned that the mobile canner wouldn't can sours, but the sour you wanted them to can was a Goza. Why wouldn't they can that one? Well, because we weren't kettle souring. We were doing live lacto fermentation in the, in the fermenter. 
Okay. We didn't kettle sour and, and, and boil off the lactobacillus. It was still active live culture in the fermenter. So they said, we can't do that. It's just, it's not clean. It's going to infect our equipment. We never had a problem with any of our other beers, even though we had, we were doing mixed fermentation. We were doing Brett beers. We were doing all kinds of stuff. None of our beers ever got infected. Well, that, I shouldn't say that. There was one time we had a beer. And it was a, a Dunkel Weiss, which had very, very low hop content. Mm. It went sour on its own without us doing anything because of whatever was in the air. But that was the only time when we stopped brewing that. We ended up marketing that as a dark sour. We ended up selling it because it still tasted great. But we stayed away from low IBU beers to you know prevent that from happening. So with the way Peter did the brewing, it, we never had a problem. He was a very clean very thorough brewer, so it was never a problem. And did you guys use mobile canning from the beginning to the end, or did you ever buy your own canning line? We ended up buying our own canning machine because we did the math, and the mobile canning was costing us more than if we just bought one. And we ended up getting a loan to buy that, and we figured within two years we would pay back the loan just from the money we were saving from the mobile canning. So that was that was a really good investment, actually. Yeah, it was pretty significant. So. Did the, the canning side of the business, were you selling those on-site and off-site both? And was that, that doing pretty well? Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, once, see, we, we had a, it was a four-head canning machine, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was a hell of a lot faster than our single-head bottling machine. So our bottling machine was super slow, and it, it was literally a bottleneck in our, <laughs> in our production, is that we couldn't, we couldn't get the beer into the bottles fast enough, which is why we hired mobile canning, because we could do 300 cans at a shot, uh, sorry, 3,000 cans at a shot, and we'd be flush for a while. But uh, once we started canning in-house, we were able to, to do canning more often and not as large a batch, so we were able to stay ahead of things. And we could do more, fle- we had more flexibility with the kinds of things we were putting into cans. We could put a lot of our small batch stuff into cans. By the end, we were selling mostly cans. We gave up on the bottles because, A, bottles were hard to come by, and they were getting really expensive. Yeah, they just weren't moving for us. Like it, they, they worked up until maybe 2022, something like that, and then it just, yep. they're heavy. The, the retailers don't want them. They don't stack. Like it's just, It was a, it's a pain in the ass. But yeah. Personally, I, I, lo- I'm a, I like cans for, more than bottles, but some people are really purists and love the bottles, but I love cans as a consumer, and I I imagine most people do. This is definitely not scientific at all, but I would say that a hazy IPA in a bottle is kind of stupid. And so it could also be that your favorite kind of beer presents better in a can and my favorite kind of beer presents better in bottles. So that could be part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. I guess talk to me a little bit about the graphic design and then let's like talk about kind of what happened and, and where it turned. But the graphic design on cans is obviously of paramount importance, especially being in the, the, the liquor stores and, or LCBOs. How did you guys decide on that and who'd you have do it? And, and do you, did, did it work or, or did it, or would you have done it differently? I, I was the designer. I did all of the design work on all of our stuff uh, because my background is in, you know, film and animation. So I've been doing that for quite a long time. I had quite a bit of expertise in that. And it, that was part of the business that I enjoyed the most, actually, was designing our can. What I didn't have enough experience in was marketing, was figuring out what I know what looks good on a can in terms of artwork. But do I know how to make that can sell better was where I struggled. I struggled with branding. I struggled with how to get our brand on there so that it's visible, but also be an, an appealing can. And when we first started, all of our cans had great designs I'm not tooting my own horn or anything, but they were great designs from an artistic point of view. They looked great. What they lacked was 
branding is that people would be like, that's a great beer. Who makes it? That's a great can. Who makes it? And so we shifted a little bit to being more brand focused. And in doing so, our cans got really bland and, and they weren't as exciting as they were when we were doing, you know, really artwork forward stuff. So by the end, I kind of figured out how to make the cans look good and keep the branding pretty solid. But it took five years to get to that point. <laughs> well, I went through the exact same thing. So I actually had artists would draw the different things. So we had a beer called Black Fury and she drew this like cool chick holding a, uh, she think you know, demon looking. Anyways, long story short, it was artistic, but it, it was so kind of like gaudy in a way that yeah there was no consistency between that and the blonde beer and then half of bison and yes yeah, so, yep. but then you you get them all together and where they look great on the shelf and at the end of the day they're just way less artistic and it it, it bored me in a sense versus bum before so that's same i was constantly tweaking our branding which may have been detrimental but i was never i was never happy with it i was always trying to improve it but the process itself was something i enjoy right up until the end it was the most enjoyable thing i did Okay, so we're we're in it for a few years. We've got cans out. We're selling in the tasting room. You're distributing throughout the city and and outside the city. What were the struggle points? Like, what were the kind of like the KPIs you couldn't hit, or the goals you guys needed to be able to reach the hump of profitability that you just? What were you and your partner talking about all the time, constantly? Like, why the fuck can't we X or whatever? It, it was getting people into the tap room. Like the first two years, we had no problem, and I don't know if it's because of how the pandemic changed things but our tap room just wasn't wasn't as busy as it used to be and when we were relying on you know more than half of our business being generated by the tap room it became frustrating we we tried to come up with like we would do these neighborhood community events where we would have all the people all the businesses on the street we would do these block parties and those ended up being great they were very successful except it was one day a week you know, once a month and it wasn't enough. And we were trying to do these kind of events where we do event releases or pop-ups or whatever. We tried to get people to come in and do things. We would do like soap making nights and learn to paint nights and crafting nights and those kind of things. Those would get people in, but it wasn't consistent enough of just people walking in off the street just to have a beer. And that was something we struggled with constantly after the first year the first year was not you know we're a new brewery people are going to show up and we weren't betting on that traffic drying up Mm -hmm. because it did there were days where there was nobody coming in at all you know we'd have one customer walk in the door buy a beer and leave and it it kind of is a a downward spiral if people don't see anybody in the place they think the place there's something wrong with it so people don't stick around and we had some success with having like a, a weekly trivia night that ended up being one of our, our big nights. People would come out for that. But, you know, it was a constant struggle to get those, just to get people coming in, bums on seats. So during that time, one big argument that everybody always has is like there's always seems to be one brewery killing it. Was, was everybody else doing well and sort of taking your steam? Or was that sort of as you talked to other brewers in the area, just everyone's status quo is like no one's coming anymore? I think it was, I, I think it had a lot to do with location. The better your location, the easier it was to get people in. The, the breweries that were off the beaten path like ours were struggling to get people in. Mm-hmm. So they had to make it up with other things. I remember Junction, the brewery that we took over from, their space was huge. And they were even further out of the way than we than they were in the space that we were in. And they managed to get people in there by turning their place into an event space. So it, it was constantly being booked for wedding and events and that kind of thing. And that was their bread and butter after that. They didn't care if people came to the tap room because they were constantly booked for events. 
So we never had a space large enough to do that. So it was a tough sell. We did have a few events, but not enough to make it sustainable. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we're going to take a quick break. And as soon as we get back, um, I have made it a point not to set anything that I think that I know, but I do have a theory about why that is. I'm going to run by you. So I want to see what you have to say. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Sure. We'll wrap this thing up. All right. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they'd get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender post. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right. So I appreciate you sticking with me through this whole thing. Definitely sharing a lot of information. And not always interesting that's coming from Canada, but like I said, everyone has a different perspective and I think it's it's cool. So I want to hear what you have to say about, in my personal opinion, and Canada market might have different timelines, but let's say in the US, 08, 09, 10 is when Unique's beer started to be a thing, but it was still kind of hard to get. Even McKellar and a couple local guys, you know, but for the most part, most of it wasn't distributed to us. You had to trade. Local breweries started doing that either at the state level and then, you know, the, the county, the local level, one city over. And then it just became ubiquitous and the quality went through the floor. And so for me, 17, 18 was the turning point where the shine was off the turd, essentially. And by the time the pandemic happened, we all kind of had like a little bit of lucky time where, you know, like you said, local people wanted to support local, support local business. That was one of the best years my brewery ever had in the nine years that I had it. And help being a distribution helped. But then I think people just sort of, like you said, remembered that, hey, we shouldn't drink this much. And and then secondly, like, I don't know, I was a, I was a Dos Equis or Corona fan or whatever before. And I still really prefer that. And so they kind of went back to their usual status quo beer. And now yeah. there's so much competition and the kind of like emotional capital around any specific beer is just so diluted across the board. You know, people have gone and tasted my German Pilsner versus the German Pilsner across the street, they're within a 10% range. Neither of them is so good that it makes a difference. I'll just drink whichever one's on tap at the restaurant when I go. So I guess that's a long winded way of saying, I think the allure of craft beer is dead individually or, or as a large scale and then there's individual breweries that are still doing okay, but like people just mostly don't care anymore. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree with that. 
I would agree with that. I, I think that for us in Canada, the industry was right about five to 10 years behind the U.S. in terms of where we were in, in terms of the craft beer industry. So things were really hot when we first got into this, like in 2015, 2016, when we started talking about opening the brewery. Things were like super hot in the industry. People couldn't get enough of craft beer and people were going out of their way to try craft beer, to try everything. And I think what ended up happening was I think we're now at the peak of we've gone past the peak of, of people drinking craft beer. People, there are so many breweries out there that you can't stay on top of all of them. You can't possibly try everything. So, you know, people just gave up. And when I go to a restaurant now, I, I still prefer a craft beer because I know they're well-made and they generally make a style of a beer that I like to drink, but I don't care which one it is. I'm not going out of my way to say, oh, I'll drink that craft beer over that craft beer. It's like, what do you have in the style that I like that's made by a craft brewery? I'll drink that. I don't care who it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where most people are at. I mean, that's me. That's coming from, I was doing that even when I still had a brewery, and this is this is going to sound awful, but where I live in my neighborhood, there was a brewery that was closer to my house than my own brewery, and I was lazy. I would go there to get beer instead of walking to my own brewery. Sometimes people are lazy. Yeah, people will go. People will do whatever's easiest, and making that effort to go somewhere else and try something new, people aren't willing to do that anymore. So I, I think that the whole attitude of if you build it, they will come is not true anymore. People won't come. You have to have a superior product or be the it brewery that everybody loves and is talking about, or you're just going to get lost in the crowd. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of times what I see, too, being promoted now by local retailers and even getting the traction online doesn't have anything to do with the beer. It has to do with the celebrity that it's next to or the... Fucking yep. the IP that they stole, or the, you know what? It just—it's not even yep. the beer itself doesn't matter. Matter, and I guess that's—it's sort of inherent in the consumer base. It's not any one person's fault. It's just maybe a, a larger scale of exhaustion from everybody. We're done yeah. running around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. If I if I have any advice for anybody who wants to do this, it's um, know your shit. Not just beer. Know your shit. Know the business. Know marketing. Know just the basics of running a business like finance, know, you know, a little bit about accounting, you need to know all of these things. You can't, you can't run a business effectively without knowing how to do all of these things. And if you don't know how to do these things, find a partner who does somebody that can complement your skill set. Because I don't know anybody that can do all of this stuff by themselves, who can brew great beer, and do everything else that is involved in owning a brewery. So I think you need to come into this with your eyes wide open and with as much knowledge and experience as you can possibly get. I was woefully unprepared, and I think a lot of people are. Yeah, well, I'm the poster child for that. Obviously, that's my whole thing. Yeah, I agree with you. So talk to me a little bit about you know, when a brewery finally closes, the announcement and the closure are usually pretty quick, but the uh, the actual depletion of the resources and, and all of that had, tends to happen slowly. So were there times in that last year that you had the decision facing you to close and decided not to, and then you made a pivot? And, and if so, what did you do? And do you wish you'd closed it? We, I wish we'd closed it earlier. Honestly, I wish we'd closed it when it came time to renew the lease because it would have been a lot easier. We could have sold off a lot of our equipment. And instead, what we ended up doing was, you know, it was January 15th and we were like, 
we don't know if we're going to make it to the end of the month. We had to make a decision whether to pay for February's rent and try to sell everything off or just say, screw it, we're closing the doors. And uh, we did the math and we we worked everything out and it, it didn't make any sense for us to keep going. So we put out a, a social media post the day we closed saying we closed our doors permanently. A couple of days before that, we tried to sell off as much as we could quietly to some of our friends and licensees that we knew really well. They bought up a lot of our stock, but you know, we left a lot of stuff behind. We took out as much as we could that, you know, we could potentially sell, but most of it we left behind. At the end of the day, it was the easiest thing to do. It was heartbreaking, but it was way easier than hanging on and trying to sell off everything and, you know, all of the the shit that comes with winding a business down. We didn't have to do any of that. We just, we literally just walked. Yeah. Because you guys were able to file like bankruptcy and not have a ton of personal debt on it. And so you could kind of walk away. Was that helpful? That's right. I mean, we our, our own debts, like that, what we put into it, we won't get that back. Yeah. I mean, the most we're going to get out of it is, is a tax deduction. But, you know, that's not going to be worth nearly as much as what I put in. So at the end of the day, that money's gone. And I, I just have to be okay with that. So that's a decision that every brewery kind of faces. And, and I don't think there's necessarily a right answer. Everyone does it their own way. But seeing some that have given four months, like, hey, 1231, the end of the year, we're not going to renew. And then some that don't say anything. And then some that have a big party over the next week or week and a half and generate some revenue. Looking back, do you wish you had done one of the other re- ways? And, and if not, I, why? I, I do. I wish we had done saying we're going to close down at the end of this. Um, we'd like to see everybody because one of the, the sentiments that was conveyed to us when we put out our final social media post was like, why didn't you tell us we would have come out? We would have liked to have bought some more of your beer. And, you know, there were a lot of people expressing sadness. And if we had made that clear early on, we may have had a bit more money to walk away with at the end, at least cover some of our debts. And I wish we had done it differently, but we did it the way we did it. And if, if I could go back and do it again, I would do it differently. Well, just like I said, there's no right answer. You, at that moment, too, emotionally, you needed to do it a different way. That's that's the value in and of itself. So it has, so this was February, basically, that you closed? Uh, yeah, February. This So February 1st, we closed the doors. That was this year, okay. 2023. So now we're almost to November. Always interests me. Yep. Is anybody in that building yet? Do you know if anybody's gone in there? Yep. There was a distillery next door, and they took over the space as a brewery for next to nothing. So because you left the you know, equipment with the landlord as part of that, yeah, that makes sense. Yep, he. I, I. I haven't been back, so I have no idea whether they're whether they're back in business. I, you know, it's a. I, I might go back in a few years to see how they're doing, but as of now, I. I really can't do. I can't bring myself to go back. Well, there's definitely a lot of emotions to it, and yeah, I've said many yeah. times in the show that it took me almost better part of a year to even really enjoy beer again after I walked away from mine. But yeah. how did that affect, you know, your situation? Do you, have you homebrewed since? Like, do you plan to homebrew no. again? I probably will never homebrew again. I don't have the same kind of enthusiasm. I still enjoy drinking beer. I will not go out of my way to check out a brewery. If there's a brewery that's, you know, there, I'll, I'll check it out. But my enthusiasm for it is is gone. The business like kind of killed it for me. I used to really enjoy doing like beer and food pairings and doing all of that kind of stuff. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just in it to, to taste it now. And um, it's also killed any entrepreneurial spirit I have to do anything else right now. I'm just happy to have a job and, and, you know, maybe that'll change. But right now I'm, I'm just happy to collect my paycheck and not have any responsibilities. Yeah. Obviously the, the reduction in stress is something that I, I just, it's hard for people who didn't do something similar to, in my opinion, to really understand just how taxing it is. And just, just something as simple as, like you said, 
feeling whether you went every day or not, which that sounds like you did most of them, but feeling like even after putting in a full day's work that you were expected at the brewery and that your input was yep. needed and you were a partner. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it probably was. And your, your partner wanted you to be part of that partnership. Right. And so just yeah. that reduction in stress has to be something that you don't miss. So I don't miss it at all. No, <laughs> right. I'm not bored yet either. So when it gets to the point where I'm bored, I might start thinking about doing something else, but right now I'm not there. I'm enjoying having downtime where I do not. Well, because it's one of my jobs that I love to go through and like dig through these things and find questions that I can ask. So one of the things you put on Facebook when you guys announced the closure, was it with the rising costs lower than normal sales and you had a boiler uh, that failed? You said it has become next to impossible, quote unquote, for us to continue operations which means it would have yep. potentially been possible. What could you have done differently to keep going? Not that you would want to. And I don't think you should have. I'm just curious what you meant. Um, I don't know if there was anything because the, the cost of everything was out of our control. The only thing that we could have done was raise the cost of our, our product. And I don't know if people would have been willing to pay for that, pay more for our beer. And that's what we struggled with. We could have. Every time we raised prices, we saw a, a drop in sales mm-hmm. every single time. So we were hesitant to do it. Eventually, it would recover. But you know, every time we raised prices, we saw a dip in sales. I don't know if there would have been anything we could have done to overcome the challenge that we were faced with. We were like right at the line most of the time that we were in business. So that extra bit of pressure from the rent and the, the cost of things going up, it just pushed us over the line and we just couldn't do it anymore. You guys had rising costs of like cost of goods sold, like your, your hops and grains and, and all that had gone up. Yep, all, all of that went up. Plus the, well, it only started to really go up in the second half of 2022. The other thing that really killed us was interest rates going up because the loans we had were a variable rate interest rate. So the cost of borrowing went up. So every month we were making a payment, it was a lot higher than the previous month. So all of those little things, it was a death by a thousand cuts. So, you know, you just, you just, you can't sustain it. And, you know, you can't, you can't cut staff. You can't cut wages. You can't do any of that without having a detrimental effect on the business. So. So you mentioned that there really probably wasn't anything else you could do. It was, it was not next to impossible. It really was impossible, but it was impossible. If you were to go back, are there things that you could, or let me ask you a different way. How the fuck are so many breweries still open? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. See, if I had to do it all again differently, I wouldn't have opened a brewery. I would have opened a brew pub. Yeah. I think a brew pub has a lot higher success rate. A brew pub that's in a, you know, a high traffic area. I think they have a much higher rate of success than opening a brewery. If I had to do it differently, that's what I would have done, is open a brew pub. Are you seeing brew pubs in your area that are kind of doing, yet seem busy enough and are successful enough that yep. that model you might want to emulate? Yep. There's a handful of them that I'm aware of, and they all seem to do really well. They don't have the same kind of challenges because they have a built-in, you know, a built-in sales market. It's people walking in and buying their beer. So, so a couple of quick questions about the industry overall. One, you know, I make the argument all the time that I feel like the Brewers Association and the state should do more to educate people that are considering open a brewery just about how tight those margins are. I think they downplay the failure rate significantly. And I think that's irresponsible. I think that, that if you're going to have a responsibility to promote the industry and to, to push people into it, that you also have a responsibility to be honest. And I get to disagree with that all yeah. day long. That's fine. I don't care. I still like my opinion. And uh, from your opinion, is there an organization in Canada that could similarly help? Or is there a way that think that the, the message could get out to help people be a little more cautious? Or do you completely disagree and you think 
fuck them if they want to. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that there's an association here called the Ontario Craft Brewers Association, the OCB. They could have been a better resource for that kind of thing. They don't do anything at all to dissuade people from doing this. They want to grow their membership. They don't want to, you know, they don't want it to contract. So I think that if they want to see more success in the industry, they need to be honest with people and say, here are the resources that if you're deciding to start a brewery, these are the resources. This is what you need to know. We're here to help, but we're also here to warn you that this isn't, this isn't for everyone. This may not work for you. So think long and hard about it because I think at the end of the day, the healthier the businesses are that are in the OCB, the better off the entire industry is going to be. If you can stop one group of people from opening a brewery on a whim because they think they make great beer, I think that's a service to all the people involved and and the consumers. Yeah, well, I would agree. But uh, like I said, I get disagree with a lot on that one. So hopefully <laughs> some of these guys will listen. And I definitely want to push that to, you know, again, I, I think we talked offline, but I don't think that you shouldn't open a brewery. But I do think that most of the people that I talk to today considering open a brewery should not in that. It is more business than it is art, and it's gotten worse than it was 15 years ago. I mean, I, I'll, I'll agree. When I started, you could be a little more art than business, but you just damn well can't now. So No, no, absolutely not. And I do think that there is this perception that owning a brewery is going to make you a ton of money. That, that is not the reality. You're lucky if you can make subsistence wage as a brewery owner. The entire time that I owned the brewery, I didn't take a cent in pay. Because I had a job, I had a, a means of making a living, but I never took a paycheck. And that's the reality of running a business, a small business that you can't afford to even live if you're hoping that, you know, your business is going to do well. Cautionary tale. You're not going to get rich owning a brewery ever. If you love it and that's what you love doing, great. But, you know, it wasn't enough for me to say, I don't, I don't mind not making any money. Well, and I think there's a difference too. Not making money is one thing, but what people tend to not accept and like you guys mentioned in your closure notice that if you're running a business that the boiler goes out or there was there was a brewery in in texas actually that had done a kickstarter for their license renewal because they couldn't afford the license renewal fee when it came up after two years if you're running a business that's that close to the edge it's not a business at that point (laughs) so no no and and mine was too like i i I actually i don't have to set this on the show but my uh, glycol chiller broke once in the towards the end and I made mixed culture beer and so I had a way to be able to make and package that product without a glycol chiller so I operated for months without one <laughs> it's just like wow I gotta get the fuck out of here I can't do this anymore so yeah yeah no we we had challenges with our glycol chiller and all of our equipment you know at one time or another gave us gave us grief and you know the boiler was the big one it kept failing and finally it did so there, there are a lot of things that you don't think about when you're starting a business like this. And if you don't have the, the money or the resources to stay on top of it, you're going to fail. Yeah. Well, ultimately, that's the point of the podcast is to at least offer a counterpoint to all the toxic positivity and get people to, oh, yeah. to think a little more, I guess, just critique a little bit more and think a little more critically about yep. what's going on. And so I think that your story and, and the story of your brewery has definitely added to that overall lexicon of information. And so I really appreciate you sharing it. Obviously, there was I'm happy, to, happy to share it. Happy to warn people. I, I really hope that if you get into this, you get into it for the right reasons. Yeah. Never, never going to crap on someone's dream. If that's your dream, do it. But just know what you're doing. Ah, absolutely. So any chance you'll get back into the beer industry? Not a chance. Not not at all. <laughs> all right. Well, never, I, never again. Well, then I hope to run into you on uh, this side of the bar someday. We'll, we'll see how that goes. So 
again, I appreciate you sharing, and we will definitely link all this stuff with the, the social media for the brewery and be curious to, to see how it comes out. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always opening to answering questions and helping in any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.